The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, if you guys got your Bibles, go ahead and uh, flip them on open to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 33 as soon as we can see. So, can I just be honest with you guys? Um, I'm really, no. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm really nervous about this teaching. (laughs) Um, I've been anxious about it all day. Just because uh, I feel like it's something that I just, no matter how much I would study it or even how much I would read about it, I just feel like it's something that is so deep and so far beyond what I can understand that I don't know how I'm going to communicate it. Um, Because it really, truly is beyond something I get. Um, It's something divine in nature. It's, it's this divine transaction, this moment, as we'll see, between God the Father and God the Son, and it's really something beyond words. Um, so I'm going to do my best tonight, and I, just, I would just ask you guys just to, to think big with me and think deep with me, um, but I'm also nervous because of just the magnitude of what really is here. This, to me, and I probably say this about other texts, but I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this one. This, to me, is the single most important moment in the entirety of mankind. It is the most important moment. The most important moment for you, for me, for every human that has ever lived right here. And tonight we get to look at that. Tonight we get to unpack that. Tonight we get to gaze at that and be sweetly broken at the cross, looking at Christ as he beckons us to look at what he did on the cross. So that's sort of what we are gonna do tonight. My intent is to somehow think outside of just reading this and think, okay, I know that there's more here. Father, I know that you have more for us. My intent is to try to dig deeper and to look deeper. So with that said, let's read it together. I'll pray and then then we'll get started. So Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land, and until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Father, tonight, God, I I really just need your grace. This is uh, such an emotional text, such a powerful text, because it really happened. Because your son really was on the cross, and you did have this divine interaction, this divine transaction. Your wrath was poured out on the son, Lord. And I just pray that tonight, if we could just have a small glimpse into the magnitude, into the greatness, into the fullness of what took place in these three hours that we are going to look at. Lord, I know that we would be changed by it. I know that we would be forever thankful when we understood what you went through, Jesus, 
So help us, Holy Spirit, come into this room. Give us wisdom. Give us illumination. Lord, a lot of us are tired. A lot of us are weary. A lot of us are feeling sleepy. Lord, would you come into this room and wake us up? Give us understanding, Father, we beg of you. May we understand your grace more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, uh, I'm gonna exposit a little bit, just kind of looking verse by verse at the first, first part of this text, and then I wanna dig in a little bit deeper, press in a little bit more on what actually Jesus was going through um, in these moments on the cross. So, going back, starting in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So if you guys remember, just from weeks prior, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night, right? Torches came into the Garden of Gethsemane. They took him away. They took him to the house of the high priest Caiaphas, where they held the first illegal trial there, where they condemned him for religious reasons, for calling himself and claiming to be God. They beat him. They mocked him. And then he was taken the next morning at about six in the morning to Pontius Pilate. We met him a few weeks ago, this new character, Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor uh, who was placed over and responsible for Judea and the area of Judea. It was taken to him, and Pontius Pilate uh, asked him questions, put him on trial, so to speak, and then he went before the crowd, and he gave them the option. Do they want Barabbas? Do they want Jesus? They chose Barabbas, right? So Jesus then is condemned to be crucified. He's beaten, he's mocked. The crown of thorns is pressed into his head. And last week, uh, Jeff took us through a little bit of the, f- the physical aspects of what Jesus suffered. Um, some of the, the things that, that happened, how he was mocked, how he was insulted, um, the hardship of crucifixion, the mockery of crucifixion. And now we pick it up and it's about midday. This is the sixth hour. So from six o'clock in the morning, the sixth hour makes it noon. It's high noon. The sun is directly above. And strangely enough, even though the sun is directly above, it's actually dark. It says that darkness has covered the land. Okay? And the reason for that, we don't exactly know, but it's really interesting to read about. I I actually found some historical accounts of different people that were of of notoriety, um, notability, different rabbis, some Caesars that that, um, claimed to have had these cosmic things happen during their burials. Like, for instance, uh, Caesar Tiberius, or I'm sorry, Julius Caesar, uh, it was believed that for his burial for seven days there was a comet uh, that shone for seven days and it was sort of the cosmos like applauding this man. He was great. Um, This is not the case and Mark makes that pretty clear. The fact that it's dark, the fact that the sun is blotted out when Jesus is on the cross is not the cosmos praising, it's the cosmos weeping. It's darkness, it's eerie, there's something about it that's, that's negative, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And Mark makes that clear. And I think, honestly, that readers, that the Jewish readers, as they read the book of Mark, their mind probably would have gone back to another thing that was similar. And that was when God showed up and put his wrath on Egypt. You guys remember that? One of the nine, one of the, the ninth plague, one of the plagues, was actually that darkness fell over the land. The sun was blotted out. If you guys have read the end of the book in Revelation, we see similar things. That when God comes back in judgment the next time, the sun will be blotted out. So it's not that God is absent from this scene that we're about to look at. He is there, but he's there in wrath, and he's there in judgment, and the sun is blotted out. 
Some people have, have tried to kind of find ways that maybe that was just happenstance, that maybe the sun just, there was an eclipse or something like that. But interestingly enough, if you guys remember, it's the time of Passover, so it's a full moon, and you can't have an eclipse when it's a full moon. Okay. Um, some people have said, well, maybe it was a dust storm. Uh, well, it wasn't, it was the rainy season at this point, so it couldn't really have been a dust storm. So say all that to say it's a supernatural event. God is showing up and he's showing um, the darkness of what's happening right now. He's showing the disparity of what's happening right now in this scene. Look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. He said, Eloi, Eloi. Lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is Jesus' first words since the trial. He's been silent, just like Isaiah 53 said. He's kept his mouth silent like a lamb going to the slaughter, like a sheep is silent before the shearers. And now he opens his mouth, finally, at the pinnacle of what's happening, at the pinnacle of his crucifixion, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is notable, and it's worth looking at. If you guys have your Bibles, go and flip back to the book of Psalms in chapter 22. Now, Jesus is quoting, and Jesus would have known that he was quoting. Most of the Jews reading Mark would have known that he was quoting. Jesus is drawing attention back to a prophetic psalm in chapter 22. Now, let's look at that together. Tell me, as we read this, I'm not going to point out everyone, but just begin to look and see how many prophetic things there are in this psalm. How many things that the psalmist said hundreds of years before that actually took place in the crucifixion of Christ. So, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, obviously sounds familiar. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse three. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make my mouths, uh, they make my mouths at me. Why am I reading that wrong? They wag their heads. Skip down to verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouth at me like raving and ravening, roaring lions. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Not sure what that is. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, hundreds of years before crucifixion, mind you. They've pierced my hands, my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's probably ringing a bell for you too right there. But you, O Lord, do not be afar off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Now, the reason I read that is because I feel like that right there is a little window into what's going through Jesus' mind. Everyone has come around me. Everyone is against me. The Father has forsaken me. They're parting my garments. They've pierced my hands. My mouth is dry. I'm so thirsty. Jesus quotes that, I think, so that we can kind of see what's going on in his heart and going on in his mind, but also he quotes that because he's pointing out that this is not an accident. Okay, I didn't end up here by accident. I ended up here 
according to God's sovereign will. And hundreds of years prior to this, it was prophesied by the psalmist that I would be here, that I would be on the cross. Continuing back in our text, verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Okay, now why would they think he was calling Elijah? That puzzled me at first. Some scholars, some commentators think that they actually didn't hear him correctly. As he says, Eloi, Eloi, maybe they they misheard him and thought that he was calling out for Elijah, which would actually make sense because it was believed, because Elijah, if you know this, Bible students, if because Elijah didn't actually die, he was carried up into heaven, the Jews believed traditionally that he would actually come down and help Jews in times of needs at specific times. So they believe that Jesus is calling out for Elijah to come and to come down and to help him. Of course, they misheard him. And then verse 36, someone ran and fled, or someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now this is kind of interesting. They most likely put the sponge on the end of the stick that they beat him with, so it wouldn't have been a very comforting thing for him. They fill it with this sour wine. Now, it's believed that the sour wine is actually something called pasca, which is basically a mixture of sour wine, vinegar, and water, something given to the soldiers to sort of keep them going, keep them awake. Um, but it wouldn't have been very thirst-quenching. <laughs> and you can imagine his lips are dry, they're, they're cracked, they're broken. Um, it wouldn't have been very helpful. We don't really know what their intention were. We don't know if they were actually trying to help Jesus or if they were actually... Um, trying to, to, to just let him live a little longer so they could see him suffer. I think that's what they were doing because if you notice, right after they give him that sour wine, they say, let's see if Elijah shows up. So it's almost like they're saying, let's let him live just a little bit longer so we can mock him when Elijah doesn't show up, even though that's not what he was really saying. So you can decide for yourself. Now, before we continue on too much, I want to stop here and I want to look at something a little bit deeper. Okay, I want to look at something a little bit deeper. I want to examine more closely what's actually happening with Jesus on the cross in these moments. I think that we hear a lot of teaching, and I've heard a lot of teaching about the physical aspects of the cross, of what happened, how he was beaten, um, what he was beaten with, the way that he was mocked, the crown of thorns, the way that he was forced to carry the cross, the way that he couldn't carry the cross, um, what happens in crucifixion and how you, you basically are suffocated by, by not being able to, to breathe, you have to pull yourself up and how your hands and your feet, we've heard that and it's brutal and it's heartbreaking. But what I wanna do tonight is I wanna kinda get away a little bit from the physical aspects of the crucifixion because I believe that that's actually secondary to the real pain and the real torment of what Jesus went through on the cross. I believe it's secondary. I believe that when Jesus was in the garden, you've heard me say this before, but when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was sweating drops of blood, I don't believe that was because he was scared of the physical torment of men. I don't believe it was because, oh, the crucifixion's coming, they're gonna nail my hands and feet, I won't be able to breathe, they're gonna beat my back. I don't think that was what he was scared of. Many men were crucified. Many men were crucified. A lot of the disciples were crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. What Jesus was terrified of was something else. It was something more than that, something far beyond what men could physically do to him. Jesus was not a coward. He was not afraid of the physical aspects. So what I want to do is just very quickly look at a few things that sort of explain what Jesus was going through here spiritually, not just the physical side, but the spiritual side. And the first one is that Jesus was, if you're taking notes, Jesus was rejected by the Father. 
Jesus was rejected by the Father on the cross. This was the first aspect of the pain that he suffered. I think to get that, to grab that, you guys, we have to talk for a second about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, okay? To understand the pain of the suffering that would have come upon Jesus to be separated from the Father, we have to understand how close and what kind of relationship that God the Son had with God the Father. So if you have your Bibles really quick, flip over to John chapter 17. While you're doing that, even looking at the language that Jesus says when he cries out, my God, my God, he's using very intimate language there. He's saying, my God, my God, it's an intimate, a personal cry out. Now, look at John 17. One of my favorite scriptures here, this is a glimpse, a window into the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. He stops and he prays to God the Father for you and I, for the church, and within that chapter 17 of John, we sort of get a couple quick glimpses into what the relationship of God the Father and the Son look like. So, verse five, Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence, and listen, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What Jesus is saying there is that he has had a relationship of sharing glory with the Father for all of eternity. Before creation, before the worlds were formed, God the Father and God the Son were knit. They were close. They were one within the Trinity. And then skip down to verse 21. Jesus says that they may all be one. Who? We. That we all, the church, may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what Jesus is saying to the Father is that he longs for us, the church, to have the intimacy with him and with the Father that he has. You can sense the depth of the relationship that he has with God the Father there. It's intense. It's powerful. You guys got to understand something. Every relationship that you have in your life, whether it's with your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, friends, within the church, every relationship that you have is simply a reflection or a ripple of the first relationship. You know what the first relationship is? Is God himself. Our God is triune. He's a community. He's three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as such, he has perfect fellowship and community and love within himself. So when God created man and created woman and designed the family that we enjoy now, having good friends, close friends, uh, people that we're married to, all, all of that, that's all a reflection and something that was built in the image of God, who is a community, who is in himself fellowship. You understand that? So think of the person that you love the most in your life that cannot compare to the real thing. That is something simply made in the image of the real thing, and that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, if one of you guys comes up to me after this and says, Sam, I don't like you. I don't want anything to do with you. I think you're a jerk. I'm never talking to you again, leaving the church, and I hate you. Okay, that would stink, right? I mean, that would bum me out. I I would probably have a hard time with that. After a couple days, I'd probably get over it and continue on with my life. Now, if my wife, who I love the most, okay, if my wife came up to me uh, and told me those same things, I hate you, I don't want anything to do with you, I reject you, I'm never talking to you again, it would crush me. It would destroy me. Why? Because she's so close to me, because I love her so much, because 
she's so important to me. Tim Keller says this, he says, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. We can't understand the, the, the pain that Jesus is feeling in the rejection of God the Father literally turning his back on God the Son on the cross. We cannot understand that. Nobody can relate with that because none of us have ever had a relationship that was as deep or as close or as long or as eternal as God the Father and God the Son. Jesus experienced severe rejection. But that wasn't all. (laughs) So firstly, he, he faced rejection. Secondly, not only did he face rejection, he also faced separation, okay, from the Father. So not only did he face rejection, he also faced separation. Now in my life personally, I can't think, and I think about this often, I can't think of anything more terrifying than being in a place in life where I'm in complete godlessness, where there's no feeling of God. It was interesting, I remember watching a documentary um, maybe a year or so ago about some, uh, some Jews during the beginning of the war World War II, and you guys are familiar with the Holocaust, you understand, probably one of the darkest moments in mankind in history, that Hitler would send six million people to be murdered. Um, But at the beginning of that, some people in Ukraine, some Jews, kind of caught wind of what was going to go down, and they knew they needed to run, they needed to get out. So they fled into the woods, families, kids, moms, all that, fled into the woods. And they, of course, were chased. They realized that they're not going to be able to hide in the woods. So there's a cave system in Ukraine. I don't know what it's called, but it's famous for being just intricate. Like, it just goes forever, and people come from all over the world to explore it. And they actually found their way into these caves. They lived in there for days. Days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. Months turned into literally multiple years that they lived in complete darkness. The women never left the cave, for multiple years, fearing for their life, no one would help them. The men would sneak out at night and go try to find food and provisions and come back. The women never got to leave. At one point, the Germans actually found them, collapsed the entrance, hoping to bury them alive. Somehow, they found a way out and survived. And the way that they found this, some guy was just exploring. He found some little cave off to the side, and all of a sudden he finds like shoes and furniture and things like that. And he's like, what in the world? He did some research and ended up finding out that they had lived in there for multiple years, and these women had never seen the light of day. <laughs> okay, now that to me is an amazing picture of what it would feel like to feel like no God, there's no hope, there is no God. No one wants us, we're in complete dark, no one will help us, complete godlessness. But we know that wasn't complete godlessness, right? God was still there. God was still with them. I think to better understand that, we need to talk a little bit about this. There's something called common grace. You guys have heard about common grace, but common grace is something that everyone experiences, okay? Now, as believers, we experience salvation grace or saving grace, which is the grace that God actually pays for our sins, atones for our sins, gives us new life. But common grace is grace that everyone experiences. Everyone on the face of the earth experiences common grace, What common grace looks like is anything that is good because God made it is common grace. So that's why you have people, for instance, that are totally wretched, nothing to do with God, complete sinners, but yet they're enjoying life. Why is that? Why is it that there's billionaires out there that live so comfortably and have awesome lives and still even have joyful moments in their lives have nothing to do with God. Well, because of God's common grace. He allows his creation, whether they're saved or not, to experience and enjoy things that he's created. 
okay? So why are there, there are moms and dads out there that, that find joy in their kids even though they want nothing to do with God? Well, because they're made in the image of God, and that's common grace. They still get to enjoy their kids. There's still moments of happiness and joy all throughout the world, even in the darkest of times. Even again in, in Nazi Germany and, and during Hitler, I mean, there was people that hid these Jews. There's common grace for everyone. God is constantly giving common grace. But what Jesus is experiencing at this moment is a complete absence, a complete absence of anything that has anything to do with God the Father. God the Father has removed himself, and Jesus is feeling a complete and total absence of God. I cannot fathom that. I cannot imagine that. It's terrifying to think about. And then thirdly, the third thing Jesus experienced, not only was he rejected, not only was he um, separated, but even more severely and most importantly, Jesus was smitten by God the Father. He was smitten by God's wrath, because we don't hear about this a lot, okay? We don't hear about this a lot, but it's so important to understanding what Jesus actually did for you and me on the cross. Jesus actually became our sin on the cross. He actually took what we have done and took the punishment for that. Now, I'm gonna read something really quick. This is by John Piper. It's a poem that he wrote, and we're gonna pick it up right at the part where it talks about our text, and it's powerful. So if you would just even tune in and listen to this, and this is sort of like a conversation between God the Father and God the Son on the cross. It's just powerful. He says, then Jesus is startled by a foul odor. It isn't the stench of open wounds, it's something else. And it crawls inside him. He looks up to his father. His father looks back. But Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside, and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The father speaks, son of man, Why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself, puffed up and selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous, slanderer, gossip. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography and fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up to your homosexual passions, dressing immodestly, lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with all the bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and deal slaves and ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you are filled with dead men's bones, you hypocrite. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. You covet and can't have, so you murder. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin and are too proud even to call it sin. You are never slow to speak, and you have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. 
You're a betrayer who stirs up division and factions. You're a drunkard, a thief, an anxious coward. You don't trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife and you are a lazy, disengaged husband. You, fill, you file for divorce and crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. The list of your sins goes on and on and on and on, and I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup, omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation past, present, and future, omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The Father can no longer look at his beloved Son. His heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, he looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence and separation. I mean, just help a little bit to get kind of an idea of what's happening. God is pouring out wrath for billions and billions of atrocious and disgusting and despisable sins of men and of women such as us. He looks at Jesus and he no longer sees Jesus, he sees our wickedness, he sees our failures, he sees our shortcomings, and he crushes the sun with severe wrath and punishments. It wasn't the physical abuse, it wasn't the nails, it wasn't the beating, it wasn't the mockery, it wasn't people leaving him and bailing out on him and betraying him, it wasn't Judas, it wasn't Peter, It wasn't Pontius not standing up for him. It wasn't Barabbas going free. It was the wrath of God poured out on him that crushed him, that caused him to sweat drops of blood, that caused him to cry out in agony, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it was. That was the weight that Jesus bore on the cross. So how could Jesus receive every human's infinite and eternal punishment? The answer is because he's an infinite and eternal God. He's the only one that could. John MacArthur said, it's an infinite wrath moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite son who could absorb all the tortures of eternities of hell and do it in three hours. He was the only one that could do it. Here's the stark realization. Here's the part where I get humbled, where I don't feel like there's hope when I realize that what Jesus was experiencing on the cross in those three hours was what I was supposed to experience. I was supposed to be rejected. I was supposed to be forsaken. I was supposed to be crushed because I deserve it, because I have done those things, because I am the source of evil. I deserve those things, and Jesus took it for me. And here's the good news. Look at verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And what happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's the coolest thing ever to think about. Jesus just went through 
such intense separation from God. And at that very moment, when he takes that very last drink of the cup of wrath, the separation between God and man is torn. Just so you guys know really quick, there was, in the Old Testament, God could not be with his people because of sin, because God is perfect and righteous and holy, and man is sinful because of the fall, because of Adam, because of the way that we live, the way that we act. God can have no part with our sin, so there was no fellowship So God created a means, he created the temple. And he said, I will create a place within the temple where once a year, one man can go into that holy of holies and offer a sacrifice and make atonement and make intercession and that will be the way that I can have any kind of relationship or any kind of intimacy with my people. And to separate the holy of holies, there was a giant curtain that was about six inches thick When Jesus yelled and uttered his last breath and passed away and died, that curtain was rent from top to bottom. No more separation, no more distance, no more God not being able to meet with man because man is too sinful. Jesus tore that veil in that very moment. Because he was separated from God, you and I never have to be again. It's exciting, it's good news. Now, just in closing, three implications. I just wanna look at three quick implications of the veil being torn. Three things that we can celebrate about tonight, that we can get excited about tonight, that, that, that we can think about that are um, implied for us in the fact that this veil was torn. Number one, because the veil was torn, we now have a new high priest. So on Yom Kippur, like I said, once a year they would go in. This high priest would go and he would make atonement for the people. He would send one goat into the wilderness and he would have another goat that was sacrificed on the altar. The blood was put on the mercy seat and atonement was made for Israel. And that was when God's presence would meet with man. Just one man. Kind of interesting. Kind of a bummer. Now, go hundreds of years back with me real quick to when Moses was in the wilderness and he's uh, leading this rabble group that has just, just made it out of Egypt, right? And they're dying. <laughs> they're dying uh, because they need water, okay? They're, they're thirsty. And so they pray to God. They grumble. God says, I'll provide for your needs. I'm going to give you water. He tells Moses to take a staff to go up to a rock and to strike the rock. Okay, so Moses goes up. He strikes the rock. And sure enough, water comes out. Enough water for everybody, okay? They have what they need. And then time goes on and they're grumbling again. Now, God had specifically told Moses not to strike the rock again. He said, don't strike it twice. Strike it once. The second time, just ask. Speak to the rock. The water will come out. Okay? So what does Moses do? He gets frustrated. He gets upset. He goes. He strikes the rock again. And God told him not to strike the rock again. And of course, we know Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land now. What a bummer. Okay? But there's a picture there. There's an imagery there. This, this rock was stricken once. It was only to be stricken one time, not twice. Jesus is that rock. Do you guys get that? Jesus is that rock. He was smitten one time by the Father on the cross so that now we can go to that rock and ask and simply speak, Lord, please give us living water. That's the good news of that. But what happens? We go up to it and we smite it again, don't we? 
We want to go use our own means, do things our own way, smite the rock that's already been smitten. Well, what we do is we go back into the old temple. We don't go into the presence of God because we think that we have to do all of these laws and all of these regulations to be in the presence of God. We smite the rock again, and God says, no, I smote the rock. I did it once and once for all so that that veil is torn. And when Jesus did that, he became the source of the living water. He became our high priest, our new, our eternal high priest. Hebrews six nineteen says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Listen to that, listen. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Jesus is the high priest. He is our intercessor now. He is the rock. He's been smitten, and there's no veil now. We go directly to him. That's good news. That's one implication. The second implication of this veil being torn, and this is cool, is that there's now a new holy of holies. There's a new holy of holies. There's this historical longing in the Bible that you see over and over again of different people in the Old Testament just longing to be able to be in the presence of God. For instance, you don't have to turn there, but uh, Exodus 33, Moses says, please, Lord, show me your glory. He's, he's asking, God, I want to be in your presence. I want to be with you. I want to see you. I want to have your presence with me. And of course, God couldn't show him his glory because it would have killed him. So he put him in the cleft of the rock, let him see him from behind. Moses' face shone, but there's this longing. You look in Isaiah 64. Isaiah says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to the mountains, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah says, I want to see you. I want to be with you. I want to have fellowship with you, but there's a veil. There's a veil there. And then even in Psalms, one thing have I asked, you've heard this, of the Lord, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. They weren't able to have the presence of God. Now, because of Jesus drinking the cup of wrath, because of the veil being torn, we now have a new holy of holies, and it's right here. <laughs> God's presence literally lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We now have intercession and fellowship with God inside of our heart. I was thinking about this. This is kind of cool, and this is in closing. Um, What were the things that were in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God? Well, it was the ark, and the ark literally was the symbol of the presence of God. Well, it's really interesting. I was thinking about, well, what was in the ark? There was three things, if you remember. There was Aaron's staff. There was some of the manna. And then there was a piece of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so we have the law, we have some bread, and we have a staff. Well, how interesting is it that, first of all, we don't have that ark anymore? (laughs) Have you thought about that? We don't need it. We don't need some symbol to represent the presence of God because the presence of God lives within us. But just like the three things, which I don't think was an accident that God said, I want these three things in there, just like those three things, we now have Jesus personifying those three things in our heart. Look at it. The law. In the ark is now in our heart. Jesus, or God said what in the Old Testament? I will write my law on your heart. So rather than looking to a book of rules, now God convicts us through the Holy Spirit. His law is written on our hearts. And then the bread, right? The bread is now within us. We took communion tonight to remind us of that, that Jesus is the bread of life. God wanted him to put manna in there. I don't think only just to remind him of how he provided for him in the wilderness, but to remind us that now we don't need that because God is the eternal bread for us. And every time we take that, we remember that Jesus is enough. 
And then I, re- I reached the third one. I was like, what about the third one? We got Aaron's staff. Okay, what is that? Well, Jesus is our shepherd, is he not? He's become our shepherd, and he guides us through the Holy Spirit that's within us. How exciting is that? We don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore. We don't need it because all of that is personified in Christ, our new high priest, and the Holy of Holies is now within our heart. Now we have this personal relationship with God where he convicts us of sin, where he reminds us of the law, where he fulfills us with the bread, where he guides us with his rod and his staff within our heart. This is amazing. This is good news. And then lastly, the third, the third aspect of, of, of what we kind of get from this torn veil. Look at verse 39. This is kind of the crown jewel of this text. It says, and when the centurion who stood facing him, so this whole time the centurion is watching what's going on. He's seeing Jesus, how he's suffering. He's seeing the sun be blotted out. He's feeling the earthquake. He's seeing Jesus cry out. The centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. How cool is that? How cool is that? That not only is the veil torn, but now the first person to get it is a Gentile. How cool is that? Now, first thing I thought about with this is this guy would never know that this was the son of God on his own. He would never know that. You got a guy up there, he's half naked, looks like a complete failure, a complete fool. He's been mocked, he's been spat on, he's been beaten. He's cried out. He looks weak. And all of a sudden, this centurion decides, that's God. <laughs> How does he figure that out? The veil is torn. And that's the third thing. The third thing that the veil affords us is the new ability to believe. That God gives us supernatural vision now, supernatural faith. That this centurion could be- believe because Jesus torn the, had torn the veil. And now, the Holy Spirit was there to reveal it. This is the Son of God. How else would he know? No one would have thought that's the son of God up there, but yet somehow he knew, and he knew by how he suffered. And that's my last point. I just want to leave you guys with this. That in looking at the cross, the centurion had faith. I'll be honest with you guys. Sometimes I feel like I say the same things over and over again, and it's like it makes me insecure because I'm like, oh, they've heard me say this over and over and over again. I seriously feel like that. Like, I feel like I just talk about the cross all the time. I talk about how Jesus took our place and stuff. But the reality is, is this all we really need? (laughs) That's where the life is. What was it that this guy saw? What was it that this centurion witnessed that, that allowed him to understand this truth, that this is God? It was watching Jesus on the cross. That was what allowed him to understand. That was what allowed him to realize. And that tonight was what we needed to look at. That's what we need. We need to look at the cross to see how Jesus suffered. Not just the physical aspect, but that God poured out his wrath on him. That he was rejected. That, that God turned his back on him. When we look at that, that's when we're, we're given wisdom. That's when we're given understanding. When we look at and gaze at the cross. Amen? So may we never get tired of that. Would you guys stand on up with me? So God, we just thank you tonight for how much we don't even understand about what happened in those three hours. God, I know there was infinitely more that happened. And I know that um, we're gonna spend the rest of eternity just trying to figure out 
the depth of your grace, that, that what you really truly did for us, God, on the cross. So I just pray that tonight for Heritage, Lord, for this group, that you would give them what you gave the centurion. Lord, the faith to know that you are God as we look at and are reminded of what you did and what you gave for us, Jesus. Lord, we're so grateful tonight for your grace. Lord, I'm humbled by this text. I feel like I have nothing left. God, just you. Nothing else matters. So thank you for purchasing us at such a costly price. Thank you for paying a debt that we could never pay. God, you're so good to us. Just go with us, Lord. Bless this church, I pray. Bless us with fresh wind of your Holy Spirit, God. May we not grow dry. Lord, may we always be so thankful and so excited and so ready to worship because of what you've done for us. So Lord, we love you in Jesus' name, amen.